Good morning. Am I on? I guess I am. Corey, thanks for the kind words. I just remind you that you tend to get what you pay for. And uh, <laughs> Will you join me in prayer? Father, thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you for how it instructs us and convicts us and causes us to be able to follow you more faithfully. And we ask that you'd open our hearts and our minds to what you would speak to us this morning. In Christ's name, amen. When I was asked to preach on this passage and assigned this, I, I had no idea that this was going to happen on Super Bowl Sunday, but uh, it is providential <clears throat> because one of my favorite days of my whole life was January 14th, 1973. That was Super Bowl Sunday back in 1973. How many of you were even alive in 1973? About a tenth of you. That's great. That's <laughs> Makes me feel great. Um, yeah, 1973, I was a junior in high school, actually, and uh, I lived in the Washington, D.C. area, and the Washington Redskins were playing my beloved Miami Dolphins, and Miami was the only team to have ever gone, well, I'll tell you the final score, they actually won the game and finished the season 17-0, and the only time before or since that, uh, in the modern Super Bowl era anyway, that a uh, NFL team has gone undefeated all the way through. And uh, I had worn my number 21 Jim Kick jersey every Monday morning uh, all through that season and was convinced that that is why we continued to win because I was very superstitious. And uh, I was a huge Miami Dolphin fan. Today, I could name for you from memory the starting lineup, offense and defense, uh, every player that was on that team. And uh, in those days, there was no such thing as video recording, really. Uh, I mean, at least not for people like us, consumers. Um, there, were no, there was no internet, there were no flash drives. Um, we, did, we had no CDs, DVDs. We didn't even have cassette tapes at that time. I'll tell you what we did have, we had these. These are eight track tapes. Anybody remember eight track tapes? I had a play, thank you, <laughs> a couple of old people. Um, I had a player uh, in my car for one of these. This is Kenny Rogers. Kenny Rogers, anyone, no? Um, and uh, I had a, a DV or an eight-track tape recorder in my room as well, and I recorded that entire football game. Now these only hold about 35 or 40 minutes of tape, and uh, I recorded the whole thing on four eight-track tapes, and then continued to play them for years after that because I mean it was the greatest game ever. What does that have to do with the Book of Revelation? <laughs> Actually, a lot. The book of Revelation really, in a way, it's like those eight-track tapes that I continued to listen to for years after. You see, it gives us the final score. We know who wins in the end. We know how it all turns out. We know how the plays were called. We know how the game went. And no matter what we see in that book at any given time, we know the outcome. In the second quarter of that football game, Bob Greasy threw... Uh, a, a touchdown pass to Paul Warfield and Marlon Briscoe, our wideout, <clears throat> our slot receiver, moved uh, offensive uh, uh, penalty, uh, illegal motion penalty, and a 42-yard touchdown was called back. And I was 
you know, oh my gosh, how could that happen? But on the eight-track tapes, when I'm listening, it didn't matter because I knew the final score. And in the fourth quarter, when Garo Yepremian tried a field goal and it was blocked and he tried to throw it and Mike Bass ran it back for a touchdown, cut the lead to 14-7, to it was okay when I was listening to the video or to the uh, eight-track tape because I knew who won. It really didn't matter at that point. I could rejoice in the fact that the Dolphins won the game. Preaching from the book of Revelation is not easy, and I have great respect for Corey, for Andy, uh, Joe, and, uh, and Mark have all preached from this book uh, in past weeks. And uh, it is a challenge, but I, I think it is clear in this book that we know who wins. We can enjoy the replay, we can know a lot about the game, how it was played, but in the end we know who won. And this morning we're looking at the wedding feast of the Lamb, and then a pretty intense wedding reception that follows. So the first thing I want to talk about this morning, if you're very spiritual and taking notes or using that little uh, sheet that we have out in the lobby there, um, is we're going to look at an incredible wedding. First thing we need to do is establish the cast of characters in this wedding. Who's the groom? Who's the bride? Who are the honored guests? And as you already know from weeks past, Jesus is the Lamb of God. Jesus is the groom. And we, the church, are the bride. The imagery of the church uh, being the bride of Christ fills the scripture. Why? Why, is, why are we spoken of as a bride in the scriptures? In the Old Testament, the people of God are referred to as beloved and an often, unf as a, a beloved and often unfaithful bride. We could preach a whole sermon series on that alone. But let's suffice to say that God has chosen this image of a marriage covenant to describe his relationship with his people. We're beloved, we're adored, we're protected by the bridegroom. And as, as individuals and collectively as a church, we may not always be faithful, but God always remains a faithful husband. It would be well worth delving into um, all of, the, of what this means in, in terms of how God sees marriage, his view of marriage, which today really is seen more as an arrangement that only can last as long as two parties feel really good about it. But that's not so with God. Marriage is not a contract where two parties agree to perform to a certain set of expectations, and if they don't, the contract can be broken. That's like Amazon. You order something, and if it comes... They fulfilled the contract. If it doesn't, you're entitled to a refund, right? Marriage is not like that. Marriage is a covenant where one person makes a commitment to another person, make commitments to each other that really are totally separate from the performance of the other person. We agree to love, to honor, to, uh, to keep, to be in relationship with this person, to forgive, to endure, to be faithful, regardless of what the other person does. That is the definition of a covenant that we keep our part regardless of what the other person does. It is not a contract. And that's what we see, and, and I think one of the reasons why the Lord puts together these two concepts of who we are as a church, who we are as his people, and this idea of marriage. That though we are called to be faithful, we often are not, but God, because it is a covenant, God continues to be faithful to us. If you know Jesus as your Savior, there is nothing you can do to make God love you any more 
than he already does. There is nothing you can do to make him love you less. Meeting God's expectations really are not a condition of God honoring the covenant. We're told in 2 Timothy 2, if we are faithless, he remains faithful because he cannot deny himself. It is in God's character to keep this covenant. So we are the bride of Christ. We are loved, we're cherished, we're honored. And God will continue to be faithful to us. We see in verse 8, it was granted to her, that is to us, to the church, to the people of God, to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. Now traditionally, at a wedding, the bride wears a white dress, and this is a symbol of purity. But who among us this morning feels like we are pure when we stand before God? Certainly not me. And yet here we are at this wedding, the bride of Christ, we're dressed in white, a symbol of purity and faithfulness. A couple of observations here. First off, isn't it interesting that it doesn't say that we earned those clothes? It says they were given to us. It was granted to us to wear these white garments. And this is really important. When Jesus went to the cross, he didn't just pay for our sin and kind of zero the account. He actually gave us his righteousness. We inherited. It was a, a divine exchange, as we, as we sang about this morning, where we, Jesus took on our sin and he gave to us his righteousness. So in a sense, we are saved by works. We are saved by our, our righteous deeds, but they're not ours. They're not the ones we did. They're the ones that Jesus did on our behalf and gave to us and allowed us to clothe ourselves with these, these righteous garments, this white garment. And what is it that we bring to the table, just sort of naturally, if that were not the case? Isaiah 64, 6, it says, We have all become like someone who is unclean, and all of our righteous deeds are like filthy rags. All of our righteous deeds are like filthy rags. There's nothing that we bring to the table. We would not be able to come to the wedding as a bride dressed in white because we don't bring anything to the table but filthy, dirty rags. How cool is that? That if you're a believer, God not only forgives your sins, but you actually inherit the perfect obedience of Jesus. It's like if you had a debt of $10 million in your bank account and someone came along and not only zeroed that debt, said, I'll take the debt, I'll pay the $10 million, but put another $10 million in your account. You receive something that you did nothing to achieve, nothing to earn. But wait, doesn't verse 8 talk about the righteous deeds done by the saints? It does. And I think it's clear that those things that we do in obedience to Christ are not forgotten. They're not enough to make us right or righteous before God, but they are worth remembering or being remembered by God. They're worth knowing and remembering. The good thing is that uh, we are not to earn our salvation this way. They are a response to our salvation. Our good deeds, the, things that the, the righteous deeds of the saints, are a response to our salvation. Men, do you put the toilet seat down so that you will remain married or because you are married? Don't, don't answer that. Uh, <laughs> those of us who are living in a, in a household with parents, do you obey your parents so that they will love you or because you love them and they love you? 
You see, our, our righteous deeds are something that we do in response to God's love for us, in response to the relationship. They're not things that qualify us. They're not something that make us righteous before God. That's enough material for another sermon for sure, but there are dozens of references in the scriptures about the good works that we do as believers. In Ephesians 2.10, we're told that we're actually created to do good works. It says, for we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Simply think we were created to do good things, to respond in obedience. In 2 Corinthians, we're also told that these works that we do will be judged, and in other places, it suggests that they'll actually be rewarded. It's clear that our good works, our good deeds, the things that we do as we follow Jesus, do not save us. They don't qualify us. But God will remember them. Apparently, enough that this would be written down in Scripture. Let me give you a quick illustration. If you, if you worked for a company, you're a salaried employee, and your boss gave you a, a, a particular job to do, a task, that was going to require a lot of effort. And you put in some extra hours, and you worked really hard on this, and took some time, and finally you finished this report or this project, and you lay it on your boss's desk, you're finished, and then the next morning you come into work, and there are a couple of tickets to the football game or the basketball game sitting on your desk. Would you say that you earned those, or were they a gift? I think you could argue either one in a sense, but as a salaried employee, my job is to do this project. I mean, that's expected of me. That's, that's what I do. And to simply complete a, a difficult project, I mean, I, I don't, I'm not entitled to a particular reward, and yet my boss noticed, and I received something to acknowledge my effort. I, maybe this is a thin illustration when it comes to eternal things, but, but I wonder if that's perhaps the nature of our good works and this idea that they'll be remembered or even rewarded, that again, they don't qualify us, but they are things that we do in obedience that God certainly notices. Well, moving on, um, we're going to look at an impressive guest list. Now, it's interesting that in this case, the bride and the guests, in a sense, are one and the same. Who do you invite to a wedding? Family and friends, right? I, I uh, was asked to do officiate a small, it's apparently going to be a small wedding for a niece up in Virginia in a few months. And uh, they're, they're going to invite only a few people, apparently. I can tell you that they will invite family. There will be family at the wedding who they are not as close to as some of the friends that they will not invite because family really matters, right? When you have a wedding, you invite and you unite families. And at a wedding, the focus is obviously on the bride. Everyone stands when the bride enters. Everyone comments on how beautiful the bride is. Very rarely do we comment on what the groom looks like. That's really not important. And, and certainly, much less often would we comment on what the guests look like. They're, they're really not the focus of the attention here, right? And yet, even though we're simply honored to be there, look at verse 9. The angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. The angel takes the time to focus on the guests and he calls them blessed and he wants it written down. It's 
as if the angel is sort of anticipating the response of, well, the guests aren't really all that important. And he underscores that by saying, just write this down. These are the true words of God. And of course, the whole thing is about exalting the lamb. The whole thing is about the, the, the marriage and, uh, and, and the exalting the one who has put all of this together, the king of kings, the lord of lords. Why, why would you and I even get a mention here? Because he loves us. Because if you are a follower of Jesus, you are a child of the king. You matter. You are important. We all want our lives to count for something. We want others to accept us. We want others to acknowledge us, to approve of us. And we spend a lot of time trying to achieve that. I know I do. We create an identity that seems to be important to us and that we hope will be important to other people. And we want that to be recognized. So whether it's sports or academics or popularity in school or uh, having a great job, being a great parent, whatever it is, we, we want others to recognize us, to be aware of this identity that's important to me is something that, that really kind of makes me who I am. We might even choose an identity that someone would find socially unacceptable. When I see a a young person with a pink mohawk and a face that looks like they fell face first into a tackle box. I, you know, I may not be particularly impressed, but that's an identity that that person wants me to notice and wants someone to approve of. We're hardwired for that. We're hardwired to be loved and accepted. And my friends, you will only find love and acceptance in the one who created you. He's the only one in whom you can find the acceptance that, that you and I crave. So we're invited to this spectacular wedding. And we're accepted. We're blessed. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. These are the true words of God. Blessed are we that we have been invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And at this point, John kind of falls to the angel's feet to worship him. And uh, the angel quickly reminds him that the only one worthy of worship is God. And I think this is just a, a reminder for us of two things. First, we're also hardwired to worship. And we, also get, we often get that wrong, and we worship the wrong thing. Someone, when I was in high school, I remember one of my leaders saying to me, the thing that you think about the most is probably your God. The thing that you think about the most is probably your God. We're hardwired to worship, to, to give ourselves to something. Uh, that's why it's so important that uh, the, the first commandment, that we should not have other gods before him. Are you more excited, am I more excited today about the Super Bowl or being in church? I, you know, Mary and I, we're, I don't believe we're having anyone over today. We didn't really think that far ahead, but... <clears throat> But generally, we invite people to come watch the Super Bowl or we go to a party. We're generally with people. Would it have occurred to us to invite people to come to church with us, to worship? It's, it's just interesting how we really kind of get this worship thing twisted a little bit. And that's so convicting for me, I can tell you. The very first commandment says that, that we should not have other gods before him. So this angel and his associates, they were impressive, I'm sure, and I'm sure you and I would have done the same thing that John did, to kind of fall down and, and begin to worship, but the angel reminds us that no matter how impressed we are with anything or anyone, whether it's a preacher, 
a politician, something we do, a job, a coach, or anyone, the only thing worthy of our worship, the only one worthy of our worship is God. And second, let's look at what the angel said. He says, I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. I'm a fellow servant with you. As impressive as the angels may be, and as beloved by God as you can imagine that they are, they are no more than our fellow servants. Or to put it conversely, as believers, we are as impressive to God as the angels. Is that cool? I mean, that's, that's our identity. That's who we are. We are as impressive to God. We, they're just our fellow servants. We're all on the same plane as, as followers of Jesus. That is who we are. We are truly honored guests if we follow Jesus. Well, the last thing we'll look at is uh, an improbable reception. This, this is the craziest wedding reception of all time, I'm quite sure. I, I've mentioned that sometimes it's tough to preach through Revelation, and, uh, and what do we make of this last section? There's a lot of vivid imagery here, mostly symbolic, but we'll take a couple of minutes to unpack at least a little bit of this. Um, it is the most improbable wedding reception of all time. First, we're told there's a rider on a white horse, and clearly this is the imagery of a conqueror. And he's called faithful and true, which is in contrast to the empty and misleading promises that have been made all through this book by the enemies of God. He is faithful. He's constant. He's never changing. He keeps his promises, unlike the beast, unlike anything or anyone else that you can give your devotion to. Who else is faithful? Who else promises that they will be with you forever? They will never leave you. They will always love you. They will never change. Anything else that we can give ourselves or our lives to, whether it's a sport uh, that we're doing, or academics, or another person, or a pursuit, a job, there is nothing else we can give our lives to that will give us that, will give us the kind of love and faithfulness in return that we are seeking. He is faithful. He's also true, faithful and true. He is the truth, not my truth or your truth, which we hear so much today. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. We don't get to define what truth is. God does. And anything or anyone who stands in opposition to Jesus is untrue, is irrelevant, is dangerous, is destructive. The only thing in this world that is faithful and true is Jesus. There is nothing and no one that you can worship, that you can give yourself to, that will love you back and never fail. And it goes on, it says, with justice he wages war. So this really isn't a military conquest. I think Corey mentioned that uh, in one of the previous weeks. It's an ideological conquest. There will be justice, and it will come from the only one who's qualified to dispense that justice. All the violence against God's people, all the injustice, all the racism, all the persecution, all of it will be avenged. No, no nation, no leader will stand before the justice of God. And it says he has a name that only he knows. Now, in many cultures, names have a great significance. My Chinese friends always ask me what my name means, and I 
generally tell them I have no idea. I know I was named after my great-grandfather and my father, James Cortland. My dad was Cortland, my great-grandfather was James. I know that, but I don't know the significance of my name or my names. But in many cultures, names are of great significance. They really mean something. They were given for a reason. In the West, we don't, uh, we don't put that kind of meanings generally to names. But in biblical times, when you gave someone your name, when you revealed your name to someone, not only did it mean something, it kind of gave them power or access. You remember Moses asking, asking God, who should I say is sending me? I mean, it wouldn't have been a stretch to think it was God, right? I mean, he appeared to him in a burning bush and, and talked to him. I mean, that, what do you mean, who is sending you? Who is sending me? I think at that point, Moses is kind of, he wants something of God. Reveal your name. Tell me who you are. It's like in the old days when if you asked a girl for her phone number, you know, like it gave you access. There was a sense of, okay, now we have connected relationally. But interestingly, in this passage, we see three times in the chapter what God's name really is. We're told that he's the king of kings, he's the Lord of Lord, lords, and he's the word of God. But now we're told there's one more name that nobody knows. And I'm not quite sure what to make of this, except to say that perhaps as created beings, God is always going to be beyond our comprehension. We're never going to get all of God into our, into our finite minds. I think it was uh, Francis Schaeffer who once said, if, if you could liken uh, understanding God to trying to get your arms around a tree, like we can kind of get more and more of it, but if my, if my hands ever touched on the other side, I would become God. I would have all of him. We will never have all of God, a name that nobody knows except for God. And it goes on to say he's wearing a robe dipped in blood, which is interesting because the battle has not been fought yet. So whose blood? I think this is definitely an allusion to the idea that, uh, first off, the battle in a sense is outside of space and time, but also because this lamb, this conqueror, is wearing a, blood, a blood-soaked garment that is dipped in his own blood that was shed for us. It also says that there is a sword in his mouth, which is interesting. It's said two times, not in his hand. Wouldn't you expect to see he has a sword in his hand? It says he has a sword in his mouth. He conquers by the power of his word. We were created by the power of his word. God spoke and things popped into existence. I, I read a book years ago. I have a friend from high school who we sort of debate now and then, back and forth, things of theology and things of the Lord. And uh, he recommended a book to me years ago, which I do not recommend. Please don't go buy this. Um, it was called God Can't. God Can't. And it was a, a book about how God really is sort of captive to, captive to his creation. And there are things he just can't do. I mean, you know, we do things and they're a little bit beyond God's control. And he just says, oh, gosh, I wish that hadn't happened, but maybe I can make something good out of it. And, and it talks about God's limitations. I found it fascinating and heretical. And, uh, and, and it, was just, it was an amazing book. Ridiculous. God creates by the power of his word. There is nothing he can't do. I think it is interesting that the, that the sword is in his mouth. It's not in his appendages. It's, 
It is God speaking things into existence, judging the, wor- the world by his, the power of his word. When I was, uh, when I've been in China and, and been teaching, um, <clears throat> we have often uh, tried any way we could to just get the word, something from the scriptures into the hands of these students who we love. And I don't mean this to sound uh, superstitious or uh, in some ways supernatural, but, it, but it's just interesting to see that when kids would read the scripture, when we could get a Bible into someone's hand, even if it was only a few verses, something happened. There is power in the word of God. There is power in that. And just being able to share with someone something from the word, God will use that because he has this sword in his mouth. It also talks about uh, his name being written on his robe and on his thigh, and I immediately thought of the, the movie Rocky. <laughs> All those boxing movies, you know, they come, everyone who comes into a, a ring, they have their name on their back, right? <clears throat> on, their, on their robe and on their thigh where people would see it, even if you're riding a horse. Everyone will know who this is. And then we're told that, that he summoned the birds, the vultures, Mary and I live in the county just a little outside of Holly Springs, and uh, there is a lot of roadkill. In fact, this morning driving to church, that same deer has been there for a week with 10 or 15 vultures sitting on it every day for the last week. Uh, One popped up in our backyard and was sitting on our deck. Mary took a picture of it. It was really scary, huge bird just sitting there inches from our window. Um, But when you see vultures, what does that mean? It means that something has died, and as a deer hunter, I know if, you, if you're looking for a deer that has died, you can't find it, look for the vultures. If they're circling, they know something is dead. What's interesting is that the vultures are summoned before the battle begins. The war was won before the fighting even started. God summons the vultures before the war begins. And that's really the message of the book of Revelation, isn't it? It's like those eight-track tapes a 1973 Super Bowl. They're awesome to listen to. You can learn a lot. But the game's already been played. We know who wins. We know the final score. We know what happens in the end. And if you're a Miami Dolphins fan, it is so encouraging. And for us as believers, we know who wins. We know how this ends. Is that not encouraging when we face just day-to-day the realities of this world? Let me close with an illustration. Think about something that would be important for you to achieve. Now, I don't know what that would be for you. For me, uh, at least a few years ago, it might have been uh, being on the NHL All-Star team and uh, being the starting center in, the, in that hockey game. And uh, you know, for you, maybe, uh, maybe it's academics, being published in a journal that everyone is going to read. Maybe it's sports, playing soccer, being on the women's Olympic soccer team. Uh, maybe it is... In, in parenting, having children who are faithful and love the Lord and have raised wonderful grandchildren uh, for you, um, your job being, being known as at the top of your profession and being honored for that. I, I don't know what it would be for you, but, but what would be something that in five years, if you knew for certain that that would be a reality? Think about that what would that cause you to do today? Would that cause you to work harder to get there or not as hard? Now, I'm not saying you're going to get there and 
you didn't do any work and so you're really not very good at it. I'm saying, no, that in five years you, you have achieved all of those things. Whether you spend another day practicing or not, you are that skilled, you are qualified to have that honor. Would that cause you to work harder or not? I, I mean, I think it could be argued either way. I, I mean, if I knew for certain I was going to be the starting center in the NHL All-Star game in five years, like, why would I get on the ice? I mean, why would I bother? Because I'm, th that's going to happen regardless of what I do. You know, I think the answer to the question really is a question. It's, do you love that thing? Do you, do you love hockey? Do you love your job? Do you love parenting? Do you love academics? Do you, do you love sports? What, that thing that you wanted to achieve five years from now, do you love that thing? Because I think if you do, it would actually cause you to work harder. I mean, why wouldn't you? Because every time you make a mistake, every time you make a bad play, every time something goes wrong, you can step back and say, you know what? It doesn't matter. Because in five years, that's where I'm going to be. And every time you make a good play, you do something right, you get affirmed for your progression in this, whatever it is, this pursuit you have, you can say, I can see it happening. I'm getting closer. I can see what is happening, and, and I know that someday it's going to be, it's really going to be done. I'm really going to achieve it. I think the answer to the question really is a question. And so for you and I, and those eight-track tapes, knowing the final score, knowing that as believers we will be with Jesus, and it is not dependent on our faithfulness, how well we obey, what we do, would that make you work harder to please him, be more faithful or less? I think it's a question. Do you love Jesus? Are you interested in walking in faithfulness with him? Because if you are, we can take comfort in the fact that when we fail, it's okay. Those things will not be a judgment on us. And when we obey, we can see our sanctification. We can see our growth in him. Friends, if you have not trusted Jesus, if you are not following him, you really are locked into a treadmill where you're running and I think really probably not getting anywhere. You're seeking truth in a culture that lies to you. And you're trying to wear filthy rags to a wedding, hoping that your best efforts, which you know are not good enough, will somehow balance out all the bad stuff and allow you some kind of security before God. And this book gives you a sneak peek at the end of the story. And it does not end well for those who don't stand with Jesus. He doesn't require you to be good. And he'll take care of being good for you. He only asks for your loyalty, for your faith, and he'll take care of the rest and invite you to the wedding as an honored guest. And for those of us who's trusted in the faithfulness, the righteousness of Jesus, then live in the joy and the freedom of knowing the final score. Follow and obey, not so that he will love you, but because he loves you. Because only there can we find real freedom and joy as we live out this story. Will you pray with me? Father, we're so grateful that you know the end from the beginning. And you give us a glimpse of that end. Father, thank you for the encouragement that it is to know that though our best efforts are like filthy rags, you have provided all the righteousness we need and we are invited as honored guests that you've clothed us in righteousness that we did not earn. Father, I pray that uh, 
you would open our eyes to see that truth this morning. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.